0: We're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church, for unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Ministry is not everything. Don't get me wrong. I love this church. Love y'all. Love shepherding y'all and caring for y'all. I love preaching. But those are all things I currently do. They are not who I am. In other words, being a pastor is not my life. And I'm thankful for that. Because if being a pastor was my life, well then the second I stopped being a pastor would be the second my life would end. But there is a better life than ministry so I say again, ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. Jesus is. He is my life. My everything. For me to live is Christ. We talk a lot about the death of Christ in church, and rightly so. But make no mistake, Christianity is ultimately about life. This past Friday marked the one-year anniversary of my mother's surprising death. Can y'all believe it's been a year? I can't. Y'all were there with me last year as I grieved this, and I grieve still. I cried a lot this past week. Uh, It is right to lament death. Death is not natural, death is not good, but for the Christian, neither is death final. And so while I cried a lot this past week, I cried with a victorious smile. Because after all, beloved, make no mistake, Jan Adams is more alive now than she has ever been when she walked this ball of clay that we call earth. She now beholds Christ who is her life. You better believe that for my, for my mom to live is Christ. To live is Christ. I was reminded of this truth these past couple of weeks uh, with the preaching load off my shoulders for a couple of weeks. Thank you, Cam. I was able to look up and realize, man, I'm a little tired. January turned out to be a crazy month for my family, busy for the church. And in the crazy busyness, I grew weary. But in these last couple weeks, Christ Jesus himself confirmed, strengthened, and established me. He restored my soul. And that is what Jesus does. In mercy, he restores His people. Do you need restoration? Turn to Mark 5. Mark chapter 5. It's on page 788 of those black Bibles around you, page 788. Last fall, we began our journey in Mark's gospel, which seeks to answer the question who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, Indeed, this is the question we saw last time when we were in Mark, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples responded to that mighty act, asking in fear, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus calming the storm is a part of this new section of Mark we're in. In the chapters prior to chapter 5, Jesus had told us four parables, and now we're seeing him do four mighty acts. And our account tonight is the second one of those. And throughout all these acts, Jesus is showing something of who he is and how far his authority extends. Sisters and brothers, Jesus is confirming that he is the Lord, that he is God. Uh, We've seen that he can do what the people understood only God to be able to do. He can calm the violent storms outside, the storms without. Tonight, we'll see him calm the violent storms within as he restores his people in mercy. Beloved, tonight we have an account of misery and mercy of the most miserable man and what happens when he meets the most high God. And I pray our study would lead you to marvel at Christ, who is our life, and to consider all of what he's done for you. Amen. Tonight's text is action-packed. It would make for a good movie, so we'll divide this passage into three simple scenes to look at. Three scenes tonight, and here is the title of the first, The Man of Misery. The Man of Misery. Scene 1.1, The Man of Misery. This point will cover chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you're new to looking at the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. God's word says, they, Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, pause. Because I don't want you to miss what's going on. You'll remember last time Jesus and his disciples were on one side of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was teaching his parables. And Jesus said in chapter 4, specifically verse 35, hey, let's go to the other side. This was his idea. And then the disciples hit that storm. It's a reminder that Jesus was not only with his disciples in the storm, he put them there. But even more than that, the country of the Gerasenes was a Gentile area. That is an area primarily populated with people who weren't Jewish. This is an important detail for our passage today as Jews considered Gentiles to be unclean. The Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. Yet Jesus says, let's go to the other side. It sounds like the other side of town, the wrong side of the train tracks. It's amazing, the prophet Jonah sailed away from the Gentiles, the greater prophet Jesus sails to them. So in chapter 5, verse 1, he and his disciples come to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. Verse 2, look with me, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's that fast word Mark loves, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Beloved, this passage is about Jesus. But the first person we meet is this man. The most miserable man you've ever met. Mark gives us so much detail about him, namely that he was host to an unclean, your translation might say impure or evil spirit. But make no mistake, though the man was the unclean spirit host, He was most obviously the unclean spirit's slave. The spirit did not give this man life. It brought to him a kind of death. That's why Mark mentioned three times did you notice this? That this man lived among the tombs. Friends, Jesus can reach those places of death we inhabit, be they old habits old thoughts, literal places that take life from us. Jesus is unafraid of them. He goes straight to the problems. He goes to the margins of this city, to outside of the camp. Beloved, Jesus is unafraid. Unlike the people of, this, of the city near these tombs. You see, the citizens of the city had clearly exiled this man to the tombs. Perhaps it was the man's friends and family who, out of love, thought it was best to put him outside the city. Perhaps the authorities put him outside the city. Either way, the man was clearly a threat to others. And so they had tried multiple times to restrain him with chains. Verse 4, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he broke them. Uh, Clearly this evil spirit had given this man supernatural strength that no one could match or overcome. That last sentence in verse 4 is so clear. No one had the strength to subdue him. Friends, it is so telling that the chains could not fix the man. The inner turmoil. The inner problem could not be fixed by outward restraints, however strong they may be. Man may try his best, man may try more than once, but the inner turmoil, the inner problem cannot be solved by outward restraints. But I'm sure the citizens of this city, the man's family and friends had long given up hope on fixing the problem. They were simply trying to contain it. And so they cast this man away. And I just want to meditate on how diabolical this spirit was to this man. In a moment, we'll reflect on how it tormented this man to the point where he would cut himself. But realize that this spirit also cut the man off from society. It sought not simply to destroy him physically, but also socially. This man was relegated to suffer alone. This demon eviscerated not just this man's body, but also his dignity, his reputation. And so this man sat isolated and humiliated. Beloved, do you see? This spirit was literally trying to uncreate this man. I'm talking about the social effects here because when God created mankind, soon after he gave the man life, he said it is not good that the man should be what? Alone. And when God said that, he wasn't only talking about marriage but community. We need community. Community. A part of how we image God is being in community. And community is exactly what the evil spirit would rob this man of. Didn't Jesus describe the enemy's work accurately when he says he comes to steal, kill, and, watch this, destroy? We talked about the social aspect of being made in God's image. But even physically, mankind was created to image God. To represent what God is like. To speak and have faculties. Faculties, this is one of the things that separated us from the animals. And yet this unclean spirit turns this man into a kind of animal. That word for subdue in our text in verse 3. Scripture uses it elsewhere when referring to taming animals. You can see this in James 3. Afar from flowing with life and vitality, this man was being unhuman dehumanized, reduced to a beast. One who would harm himself physically. The unclean spirit was literally defacing the image of God in which this man was made and created. The enemy comes to steal and to destroy. And so the man harming himself wasn't just a threat to others, but also to himself. Friends, for those of us here who have ideations or have actually acted upon cutting or otherwise harming ourselves, God has a word for you. The Bible speaks literally to our deepest wounds and says you are not alone. And even if it seems like everyone in town has given up on you, God has not. Even if it seems like it's all over, like I'm living among the tombs, like the enemy has already stolen. He's destroying. We might as well finish off the work off and kill myself. Pastor, I'm already living among the tombs. I might as well put myself in the tomb. Oh, God hears your cry. Even if it's just internal, even if it's constant, now, this man in our text, verse five, says, "Cries night and day, always." If you've ever felt like, "When will my suffering, my oppression end?" You are not alone. If you're walking along someone, alongside someone who's really suffering, you are not alone. Imagine being in the city and hearing this man cry out constantly. Well, Jesus doesn't just, doesn't just imagine he comes to the other side to meet this man. We'll see what happens in a moment, but let me say two things quickly. First, if you are tempted towards self-harm, please talk to someone you trust and keep talking to them. Be it a friend, someone in your community group. And if you don't know who to talk to, come talk to a pastor at the door after the service or one of the women's ministers at the door after the service. That's the first thing I want to say. Second, I think Jesus coming to the other side for this man is such a picture of how Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. It wasn't enough for Christ, that the majority of citizens were safe. Because even though they were safe, the man was not. Friends, God doesn't just care about our church. He cares about you, you, individual you. God cares about you. Just as he cared about this most miserable oppressed, tortured man we just met. God himself will meet this man in our next scene. Scene number two, the meeting with the most high. Point number two, scene number two, the meeting with the most high. This will cover verses 6 through 13. Let's look at them together. And when the terrorized man saw Jesus from afar, he ran And fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' For he was saying to him, "'Come out of the man, you unclean spirit.' And Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs.'" Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is the word of the Lord. In the last point, we met a most miserable man. And now we see what happens when that man meets the son of the most And one of the first things he does is run toward him and fall down. Verse 6, he fell down before Jesus. Now, was the man falling down in defeat? The unclean spirits knew they had lost. Or was this man falling down at Jesus' feet pleading for help? Uh, Like the leper in chapter 1. Maybe he was doing some of both. Uh, There was a war going on inside this man, but the unclean spirit seems to prevail, and they cry out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Uh, Y'all remember in Mark chapter 3 when the Pharisees were saying, Jesus can only cast out demons because he's in league with them? Well, this exchange clearly debunks that. Uh, The unclean spirit is like, we have no dealings together. What do you want from me, Jesus? And that's why Jesus told the Pharisees back in chapter 3, I'm not with Satan, I'm against him. I came to bind him up, interesting, so his captives could go free. You see, Jesus knows the real enemy to chain up, and he'll do that so that his people, the enemy has chained up, can go free. So they can be restored. But I'm getting ahead of myself. After all, did you notice the oppressed man answers the disciples' question from our last sermon? You remember after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples asked, Who then is this, that even the wind of the sea obey him? Chapter 4, verse 41. And if we just keep reading, we see the answer here in chapter 5, verse 7, that this is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Friends, what the disciples ask. The demons answer. But at this moment, in this meeting with this man, Jesus ain't focused on his name. He's focused on the man's. What is your name? He asks him in verse 9. The man responds saying, I'm legion for we are many. A Roman legion was a military unit that numbered around 6,000 men. I don't think this means that there were necessarily 6,000 demons possessing this man, but rather simply that there was a lot. Uh, This isn't the first time uh, or instance of multiple demons overcoming someone. Uh, Mary Magdalene, who became a close follower of Jesus, was possessed by seven demons, the scriptures tell us. But this man, one commentator said, is filled with an army of militant demons. Beloved, this is the most possessed man in the Bible. So much so that when Jesus asks his name, we don't even learn the man's name. No, it's the demons who speak. Again, this speaks to the total oppression this man was under. There was no him left. His name as his person is gone. He had been consumed. And beloved, the oppression this man experienced by this demon ought to remind us that when we're dealing with people We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the dark forces of this world. That doesn't mean this man is totally innocent, that he never sinned, but rather it means that there is more going on with a person than their sins. Friends, there is more to a person than their sins. There is more to a person, more to you, than your sins. I love how Alabama attorney Brian Stevenson says it. Each of us is more than the worst things we've ever done. We're created in the image of God, an image the enemy wants to deface and destroy. And he can try to do that in so many ways. Now you may be sitting here thinking, well, I, don't, I don't think I'm demon-possessed. But you know what it's like to be tormented inside. By depression. By shame over something you did in the past. Maybe something that you keep doing and can't seemingly help yourself from doing. But doesn't this passage speak to the inner torment many of us might feel when it comes to addiction, be it sexual addiction or addiction to different substances? You feel chained to these desires and the shame that results from indulging them. Many of us here feel shackled by present and past shame. Maybe you feel tormented by insecurity about what will happen in the future. Friend, maybe you know the torment of insecurity about your body image. Whatever it is, friend, I want to be clear. Because we live in a fallen world, just like our bodies can get sick, our brains can get sick too. Our mental health challenges are real. We endorse getting as much medical help as you can get. That's a real grace. And we don't want to over-spiritualize some things. We're not saying every inner battle is symptomatic of demonic possession. No, the application here is more broad, more basic, more relatable. Friend, be honest. Do you know what it's like to be tormented inwardly by some really terrible things? Things that you wish would go away. What can drive them away? Keep listening. For now, we see Legion speak to Jesus, and Legion asked Jesus not to send them away. Verse 10 He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, I think the unclean spirits beg to not be sent out because when they see Jesus in Mark, the unclean spirit think, spirits think that their judgment day has come. They think Jesus will cast them to a place of torment. The unclean spirit in Mark 1 says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Friends, the unclean spirits know Jesus is righteous. They know evil and Jesus do not get along and that Jesus always wins. And so Legion here begs Jesus to send them into this massive herd of pigs, which Jesus gives them permission to do, and they lead the pigs to drown, which reinforces how self-destructive demons are. And friends, even in this, we see some incredible biblical theology. The last time God's people saw the seas calm and a powerful hostile force drowned in it was the Exodus, with Jesus on the scene. A new exodus is being played out. And as one commentator said, it involves Israel's true enemies, demons, not nations drowning. Friends, I know this is all heavy. Christianity is about life, right? We'll see that soon. But the more we understand the darkness of life among the tombs, the more we'll see the glory of life with the Lord. And while this account reminds us that this realm, the realm we can see, is not the only realm, and that can be scary. I think there is some life-giving comfort here. Sisters and brothers, take heart. Jesus is the Lord over every realm. Remember, he gives legion permission to move, showing that Jesus is in charge. Jesus does not ask legion for anything. Friends, one wonder this text shows us is that though the spirits are evil, they are not equal with Jesus. Indeed, Jesus simply speaks and they submit to him. With but a word, Jesus calmed a a sea raging out of control. And with but a word, he also calmed a possessed man raging out of control. The storms without, the storms within bow to his word. Friends, in Jesus' very mouth is the scepter of the universe. And he always exercises his authority in good, life-giving, and protecting, restorative ways. Sisters and brothers, let this remind you. That though Jesus is gentle and lowly, that does not mean he has no strength. Mark highlighted the strength of the demon-possessed man. Remember, he says in three or four different ways that no one could subdue this guy. No one except God. In Mark 9, we'll see another encounter with unclean spirits, and the disciples try to cast it out. Remember, Jesus had given them authority to do this in Mark chapter 3, but they can't cast this one out. They asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And he says that there are only some, that the only way they can be driven out is by prayer, by relying on God. Beloved, rely on God. He is stronger than anything. And his his authority extends over everything. Legion may have been strong, but God is stronger. So if you fear demonic forces, rest assured, God is stronger. Allison Wise made this point at Sermon Read last night. That the number of demons, thousands... Only highlight how strong God is. He, our one God, can easily handle thousands of demons. Praise him. He is the most high. Meaning he's on his own level. He is without rival. And the news of what he can do, boy, it's about to spread. Scene number three, the messenger of mercy. Mercy. The messenger of mercy. This point we'll cover verses 14 through 20. Jesus cast legion out. These pigs drowned and the herdsmen, presumably presumably the ones who had the pigs. Verse 14 says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. Clothed. And in his right mind. Can we just pause there for a second and praise God. Someone say praise the Lord. Look at your neighbor and say God is good. I love how one commentator pointed out how this is such a picture of discipleship and salvation. A restored individual sitting at the feet of Jesus. Beloved, think of your own testimony. You, who were once far off from God, perhaps tormented, were searched out by Jesus, and now you're sitting here, clothed in your right mind. Your own sitting at church is a testimony to God's goodness. It's so ironic. Back in chapter three, Jesus' family, you remember? They said, Oh, Jesus is out of his mind. Oh, I beg to differ. Jesus is the sanest man walking the planet. When he restores us, we become more sane. Christianity is one great journey in not being crazy anymore. It's not just sanctification, it's sanctification with an E instead of a C. Pastor Camp, didn't you say this last week in Romans 12, bro? That after we know God's mercy, offering ourselves to him is the only reasonable response the only logical sane in our right mind response. I love what Paul spells out doctrinally last week in Romans 12, Mark fleshes out practically. Here in Romans five, it's like this author has this, this book has the same author, it's crazy. Actually, no, sin is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Friends, like, I'm just gonna drink this thing that's killing me and will leave me thirstier. And I do it because it tastes good or because it provides relief, escape. But many of us know that sinful taste, that sinful rush we get is fleeting. Each sip tastes worse than the one before. Friends, sin appeals to the crazy in us. Let us resolve yet again by God's grace, then, to not be conformed to this crazy world, but to be transformed by the renewal of what? Our minds. May we have the mind of Christ about us, as seen in 1 Corinthians 2, and may the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4. And that's a great thing to pray for one another as you pray through your ICC member prayer calendar available wherever ICC manifolds are sold. Let's keep going. Uh, because our story takes a crazy turn. The herdsmen tell the city, they came out and see this man. They were terrified of healed. And they, end of verse 15 says, "We're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Beloved, this is crazy. There's something strange that happens when we see God's work and don't respond with praise. Jesus has just done something beautiful and they want him to leave. They're terrified. Remember, people responding to Jesus' mighty acts with Fear, that's what's happened and that's how the disciples responded after he calmed the storm. The people here in the garrisons might have thought, if this guy Jesus keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to make us lose our money. Those pigs that just ran off a cliff were valuable livestock for us. Get out of here, Jesus. Friends, I can't explain the people's rejection of Jesus because it doesn't make sense. But let this sober you. I think a lot of people assume, well, if I could just see God manifest and do something, then I'd respond rightly to him. And here's my question. Why do you assume you'd respond rightly? Why do you assume you'd welcome him when the Bible is full of accounts of people seeing him and pushing him away? Sin is crazy. And sin is sad. And it is so sad that Jesus grants the people's requests. He leaves. Sometimes the worst possible thing that could happen is for the Lord to grant our prayer. But not everyone wants Jesus to go. I love this next snapshot. It's so beautiful. The people tell Jesus to leave in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. You can just see it, right? The guy is like, let me come with you. I'm ready to leave everything. You are my life. I just want to be one of your disciples. Verse 19. And Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the man in his right mind, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. There's a bit of awkwardness here, right? Oh, the record player scratches to a halt, like... After all, the demons beg Jesus to not send them away, and he grants their requests. The citizens beg Jesus to leave. He grants their requests. But the healed guy, our guy, begs Jesus, and he's denied. Jesus says, you can be my disciple, but you can't come with me. In fact, stay right here and tell people about me. This is a reminder, friends, that God doesn't call all of us to leave our homes to go proclaim the truth about us. Some of us have that call, but I think most of us usually stay right where we are and tell our friends. Did you see that in verse 19? Jesus says, "Tell your friends about me." Oftentimes, the people who are scariest to evangelize to evangelize are the people who know us the best—our friends, our family. So, confession time. I'm my friend who saved my life. Uh, who I talked about in the last sermon, right, when I went swimming. I've been meaning to send him that sermon and say, hey, man, I shared this story in hopes that he'd listen to the sermon and hear the gospel. He's not a Christian. I've been meaning to send him this sermon for two weeks now. But honestly, I've just been scared to do it. I'm nervous about what he'll think of me. And the sermon. Oh, here's Isaac talking about Jesus again. Beloved, would you pray for me that God would give me boldness to just send the sermon to him? And pray the Lord saves my friend. And since I'm often a big scaredy cat when it comes to evangelism, I figure I go ahead and write a book about lousy evangelists who stink at evangelism. I wrote this book a couple of years ago. Uh, this copy goes to the first person who meets me at the door after the service. Anyway, our guy goes, our guy asks to go with Jesus. Jesus says, No, go tell your friends about me. And this should make us scratch our heads. Typically, when Jesus heals, he tells people to not talk about him. What's going on? Well, remember, this is a Gentile area. No one knows much about a, prom- a coming promised Messiah, and no one really cares. On the other side of town, Jesus would be like, don't talk about me because people were already clamoring at him. The Messiah is here. But even beyond this, in leaving a witness among the Gentiles, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Remember, Isaiah is the most cited and important work in Mark. And Isaiah prophesied that God would restore his people and make them a light among the nations. That is what's happening, beloved. Beloved. Jesus is, through the most surprising of messengers, sending forth light and life to the nations. Friends, it's so interesting. If we had Jewish sensibilities, in many senses, this is a dirty passage. We see pigs, unclean spirits, Gentiles. But there's nothing so dirty that Jesus cannot wash clean. He is sending light and life to the nations. And so he says to the healed man, stay here and tell people about the Lord's mercy. And I love that Mark implies that the man does just that. No arguing with Jesus. No complaining about his assignment. No, verse 20, and the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this area of Greek and Gentile cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Mercy should lead to marveling. Seeing mercy should lead us to marveling at God. This is our reasonable worship, our in our right mind response. I mean, wasn't this our experience last week when Justin and Bridget and John stood in those waters and told us about their misery, but Jesus found them and they received his mercies and proclaimed it among their family and friends. I love it. Friends, that is the trajectory of a Christian, from death to life, from misery to mercy, from pushing God away to proclaiming the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, Jesus is doing these mighty acts among the Gerasenes and among Birmingham and Morocco and Thailand and Jordan to let us know what Mark told us in chapter 1 is happening, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And just to be clear, God's kingdom is Jesus' kingdom because Jesus is God. After all, did you notice Mark's sneaky move at the end of this text? Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says to our guy, go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Verse 20, the guy goes and proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus and the Lord are synonymous names in the Bible. Our friend now, in his right mind, goes and brags on the Lord, which is to say he brags on Jesus. I mean, I wonder what his baptism testimony would have sounded like. I once lived among the tombs. I stand before you all to be baptized in obedience to Scripture and to publicly declare my trust in the finished work of Christ. Friend, this man knew what Jesus had done for him, how much mercy Jesus had had on him Do you. To you? Because after all, what Jesus did for you was greater than what he did for this man. At the end of the day, Jesus spoke to this man. Yes, exorcism and all that is incredible, but again, Jesus did it with a word. He spoke to the man, but he died for you. (laughs) Who wants to hear the gospel tonight? Beloved, you miss the point of this passage if you leave tonight not reflecting on what God has done for you in Christ. You miss the point of this passage if you think about Jesus stepping out of heaven and entering this world. Talk about coming to the other side. You miss the point if you don't think of, what Jesus, of Jesus facing a foe that bound us, the shackles of sin and Satan, foes none of us have the strength to overcome. And yet the way Jesus overcame them is he allowed his hand and his foot to be bound to a cross, the cross you deserve to hang on. And in hanging on that cross, Jesus disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. And don't even get me started, but here I go anyway about how this man Jesus went among the tombs. Right? He died. And he was placed in a tomb. But unlike our guy tonight, Jesus did not live there. He did not live among the tomb. Oh, beloved, the tomb was not a home for Jesus. It was just a hotel. He was a temporary guest. Death would have liked him to stay longer, but it was not able to restrain him. The chains of death could not keep him, and the tomb could not hold him. Friends, the exodus Jesus simply spoke tonight. He fulfilled and carried out once and for all with his body. Cam was so right in Romans 12. Paul is talking about offering ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But on Calvary, Jesus offered up his entire self as an offering of atonement. And the resurrected and ascended Jesus now sits Sitting is the posture of a Christian. He now sits offering that you might come and sit, that you might come and rest, that you can cease striving and come and be clothed in his righteousness and be in your right mind. No more craziness of sin. No more slavery to the screaming voices inside you. And I get it, Christian. Those voices can still be so loud sometimes. I want to be so clear that this passage is not teaching that Jesus always fixes our inner battles right away. He can do that, but he doesn't normally. Friends, after all, even though our guy tonight was immediately healed, this guy still likely had scars from all that cutting. He walked through life with those scars. Even though the disciples made it through the storm, do you think that's the last time they ever faced bad weather? Friends, Jesus is acting in a special way when he walks the earth. In his earthly ministry, he's providing previews of that glorious restoration of all things. We're not quite there yet, but we will be one day. Until then, we still wrestle with sin and with inner voices that scream that we are inadequate and unacceptable and wrong. Voices that tempt us to numb our pain with pleasure and distraction and whatever we think will provide relief. The only thing that will ultimately silence those voices is the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. Beloved, receive that good news. You don't have to do anything to make yourself acceptable. Christ Jesus, the Son of the Most High, has done it all. Rely on that. Repent of your sins and rest. He forgives you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me when I say, Christian, all your sins are forgiven. All of them. God does not look at you and see death. He wants you to know the life and vitality and forgiveness and restoration there is in Christ. I forgive you. God says, doesn't mean we won't have natural consequences for our sin, but I forgive you, God says. So go and proclaim how much I've done for you. Let's pray. Lord, you've done so much for us in Christ. Even if we had all day, we couldn't explain a fraction of what you've done for us, but help us to explain something of it to our friends, to our family. To ourselves, in Jesus' name, amen.